Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition meeting. This is Sunday, it's uh, um, September 17th, 2017. Um, I have a 7 a.m. Friday, uh, September 15th share ID, which is for the 7 a.m. meeting, it's 10,434, that's 10434. I, I do not have the 10 a.m. meeting uh, share ID, but I'm sure if I need to get it, I will. I hope somebody will give it to me. So this morning, we're at a vision for you, and we're at a special edition meeting, and uh, the presentation is entitled Finding Neutrality, Safe and Protected. Okay, joining us this morning is Sylvia F. I think she's from California. She's going to have to correct me with that. And she has an eager test. Of, she has an eager message. So um, we're going to um, welcome her now. And uh, welcome, Sylvia. Thank you, Jennison. This is Sylvia F. And I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Northern California. And you were right. So, um, and it's quite early here, and uh, but I'm, I'm eager to be up and doing service um, for this meeting that has given me so much. So today, uh, I wanted to talk about um, how I found neutrality in the food, and uh, but I wanted to preface it to say that this is my story only, and um, it, it certainly comes from working the 12 steps, but our paths might be different and what works for me um, might not work for you it, because it, we're all a little different and I'll tell them my story about when it did work and when it didn't work. So um, I, would in, I would encourage you, no matter what I say, is to take what you hear and um, be honest with yourself, your sponsor, and your higher power. And that's the way that we find this neutrality so I hope some of this re resonates with you and you hear something that's helpful. So, you know, I know that uh, when I start sponsoring and uh, I, when I sponsor, one of the requirements is that they listen to Vision for You every day besides working the steps with me. And um, many of my sponsees admit that when, I, when uh, they heard many of us recovered on the line, they thought neutrality was a lie that we told on the telephone lines or that we were exaggerating because they couldn't imagine it was possible. And so, um, you know, I just wanted to start, and, and hopefully, you know, this will be clear, is that when I'm talking about neutrality with food, I'm not talking about abstinence. Abstinence is, you know, when we first come in, we have to, the first thing we have to do, my sponsor told me, I have to put the plug in the jug and then I have to work the steps. And so it meant that I had to get abstinent right away in order so that when I worked the steps, I was working the steps with a clear head. And so then I could get the rest of the promises. And so uh, abstinence, you know, that, that's hard. You know, you have to, you have to start, stop using this medication that, well, I was using my whole life to be able to navigate through life. And so, um, but once I got there and I worked the steps, this is, this is the, um, the neutrality that the 10th step promise uh, gives us. And it's on page 84. And the 10th step promises says, 
and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel like we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So this is the promise that we get after we've worked uh, steps one through nine. And it doesn't say that we're never going to have food thoughts. You know, uh, it says seldom. And it says that we're not going to be fighting it. We're going to be placed in a position of neutrality. And the promise is, is, you know, in the big book, it always says you can have that if, you know, they always make it conditional. It's like, yeah, you know, a magic wand doesn't come down and just say, okay, poof, you're never going to have this again. It says, no, you get this if you do that. And it's throughout the book. And I like the clear cut directions of telling me what do I have to do? And it says, I have to keep in fit spiritual condition. But before I go back, before I go into this, I want to, um, qualify, I want to tell you my story so that you know that uh, I didn't, um, that I don't get neutrality because I don't have the disease. I get the neutrality and I am absolutely a compulsive overeater. So I can remember that I was um, addicted to sugar and junk food, you know, right from a child. Uh, I remember one of my first memories is that I, um, my mother said that I could put my own powdered chocolate. It's that Nestle's uh, chocolate. I'm, I'm 65. This tef- definitely dates me. So I could put that into the milk. And so I thought, uh, as with all things with sugar, more was better. And I loaded it in the, thing, in the milk and I stirred it up. And my brothers, who are not compulsive overeaters, laughed when I threw up after having all of this, um, putting too much uh, sugar and chocolate in the milk. But to me, that was like the first time that I really remember. And I went off to elementary school every day, and, and I think uh, lunch, I think my mother gave me lunch money every day. It was like 48 cents for school lunch, and you could get a hot meal. But I never got the meal. I just thought I was so clever because I used the 48 cents, and I got, they had these um, potato shoestring potato chips or something, and I'd get a chocolate-covered ice cream cone with the nuts on it, and then i get a chocolate covered ice cream bar and a little container of milk. And that's what I had every day because why would you use this food? Why would you use that money for a meal when you could get all this good stuff? And so, I mean, I, did, I rarely remember having anything but that. So by the time I was in high school, I had a whole bunch of major life events. So, you know, I was already addicted to sugar, I think, you know, for sure. But then um, my father died, um, I had some molestation in my home. We moved uh, all of a sudden. uh, My brothers were gone from home. And uh, the woman who lived with us and raised us in our home was gone. So it was just me and my mom. And, uh, you know, I was was just pretty, I was pretty scrambled. Um, At that time, I'm 5'4", 5'3 and a half, 5'4", and um, already 
I, I thought I was overweight and unattractive. I didn't have any sense of self. I, at the time I weighed 124 pounds, but I, I thought I was uh, unattractive, but I've never had, never have, never will be able to diet. Diet was not part of my um, experience. I, I, you know, so I, that was I could go to the pay and ways, and it, none, none of them ever worked for me. So by the end of my college years, my disease had really kicked in, and um, I, I remember being at college and being so uncomfortable with myself, with um, the situation at college. I didn't have any friends, and um, just going down to the food court and having food made for me, even though I was already, you know, many, many pounds overweight and um, feeling terrible, not even wanting to eat the food and eating the food because I had nothing left. I had nothing else to do. So, um, you know, life kept on kicking me around and I wasn't making good decisions either. And um, I, you know, I was obese. I got into a situation where I was raped and, you know, so things were not good. And so, at some point, you know, I was probably in my late 20s, I, I just started to have, you know, a, a, a nervous breakdown of sorts. I, um, I got such bad anxiety and phobias, I could barely, um, barely uh, navigate through life. And so um, I was lucky that I went to a great doctor, um, a very down-to-earth doctor, and he wrote me a prescription that said, um, you know, no sugar and he put a little arrow and he said more exercise and um no caffeine and um and I started with there and I started getting some therapy and um and so that did help I mean it definitely helped me at least get the basics of life together so uh my first son was born and uh i was i was very heavy at the time i don't know maybe 160 170 so not as high as i was going to go and uh he was 6 months old and i made a decision that i did not want him to be embarrassed about having a fat obese mom and i didn't know what to do about it um so i that i went into my anorexic stage uh i just basically quit eating i had no sugar for about eight years, no fat, which now I know that you need fat. It's, you know, it delivers my hormones and it has a brain function. Um, I was vegetarian at the time. I went high carbs, but not much food. And um, by that time, uh, I weighed 108. And of course, then everybody says that you just look great because they don't know, they don't understand that I'm freaking crazy, uh, but my looks good. Looks good. So, um, I, I had two children, got a divorce, and um, I was a single mom for a while. And then I got, uh, I was married a second time, and it was 40 years old. I had um, these two kids, uh, and I was moving. And I just made a decision that I wanted to feel normal, and normal meant uh, eating normal food with my husband. And so uh, normal, because I'm a compulsive overeater and crazy person, got me to almost 200 pounds. Uh, I know that I quit weighing myself at 187 pounds and went higher before um, I got into program. And, uh, you know, I was doing all the same things that many of you do. I heard on the lines, I, you know, I, my car was my binge mobile, you know, I could eat in the car and that was like, nobody could see me. 
and I would always make sure all the wrappers were gone because I didn't want any evidence. And I went Mini Mart to Mini Mart, which my version of the liquor stores. When I finally uh, got abstinent, I remember driving by various Mini Marts and longingly remember of exactly what food items those particular Mini Marts uh, had. And uh, yeah, and then uh, you know I w- I'd have to load up on eating all kinds of candy and junk food before I went into work meetings and. Then after a meeting, I would have to medicate, you know, by eating. And I would eat on the way home in the car, and then I'd go into the house, and I'd have to act like I was hungry for dinner and just eat a normal meal. I know that, you know, my husband, because I was so good at hiding this stuff, um, my husband just thought that I had a slow metabolism because I had him totally fooled. And um, so I was living a lie. And um, I was making a mess of work, things and work in my relationships with work. Um, so uh, my, my mother suddenly died in 2005, and I flew back in for her memorial. I'd had a contentious relationship with her pretty much, you know, my whole life. She did her be- the best she could. In a, uh, anyway, so um, I remember walking down the street in this uh, small town where we were having her memorial service. And saying out loud that I was ready to bury this uh, craziness and the resentments and bury it with her, I was done. And I didn't even know what I was done with, but I realize now that that was probably my first prayer and my first surrender. And so I found a way through, I was reading a memoir, just happened to pick up a memoir that absolutely told my story. And... um, uh, you know, it was, it was the first one who talked about food the way I felt about food, that it was, you know, I couldn't stop eating. I couldn't control it. I couldn't do a diet for more than four hours. Um, and I just felt worthless. And so I uh, I read the book and then I got on the Internet and researched until I found some reviewer who mentioned that the program she was in was Overeaters Anonymous. So I went to my first meeting. It was in Sacramento, California, where I was living. And um, I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't tell my family, friends, and I showed up there. I was so embarrassed and scared. I felt like I was joining a cult. Um, it was hilarious and because I was so into self. Of course, I didn't realize that everybody who was there had what I had because I was scared I was going to see someone. And so on that very first meeting, you know, I, I heard that I had a disease, and now I know the disease is out of the clearly written out of the doctor's opinion in the big book, which is the um, physical allergy, which was certainly to sugar um, and uh, refined carbs. And I had the obsession of the mind and that it wasn't my fault. And I cried for weeks because I was already in my 50s. I cried for weeks when I heard that I had this disease, you know, and that there was a solution. And so... um, at the end of that meeting, someone, I have no idea who it, it, it was, even though I was, uh, you know, in that home group for many years, uh, she just said, she gave me the, uh, the uh, plan of eating the, I forget what it's called in the OA, the pamphlet, which gives you some choices of food plans if you need it. And she said, you know, some of us eat three meals a day and um, don't eat sugar. And I said, boy, I am in because I have got to get some relief. And so the next morning I ate breakfast and, you know, I, I don't remember anything, anybody uh, saying anything about portion size. That's fine. I have no idea how big that 
breakfast was, but I had breakfast and then I said, okay, I'm not eating until noon. And I thought I was going to die before noon. I was so hungry and I had, you know, physical withdrawal symptoms. I was headachy. I was crabby. I was just, I, I was terrible. So I ate my meal at lunchtime. It was probably a huge portion because I knew I was going to have to make it to dinner. Didn't matter at that time. And uh, again, I just felt terrible. And so I, uh, there's a commuter meeting every day in Sacramento at 5:30. And so I went back to this commuter meeting, and without any prompting, a man in the room was sharing his own experience, and he said that he had to remember that nobody ever died of starvation between meals. And I laughed. And I had to know that, you know, somebody else had it and indeed I was going to be able to do this. But it it just let me know that um, I had never stopped eating. That's the thing is I'd been eating from morning to night and I didn't have meals. There was no beginning and no end. So that was the beginning of my learning to eat meals. So uh, my mother had died. Uh, I got into program in March, I think, 2005, and my mother had died already that month before I had flown back that summer to go to our family home and I was sorting through a lifetime of family possessions. Um, we, we've owned the house for many, many, many years. And someone had given me uh, the Joe and Charlie cassette tapes, cassette tapes. Uh, they, uh, the AA, um, they worked the AA program and did workshops around the country. And somebody gave me these cassette tapes and she had a cassette player so here I'm going through a lifetime of possessions and I'm playing the Joe and Charlie tapes that are going over the steps and I'd be sorting through something in all kinds of emotions. And then they would say something so profound or so on target for me. I'd have to stop, rewind, sit down and listen. And that's where I started to hear really hear about what I needed to do to find this recovery. So I started working the steps uh, in OA, I call it regular OA. I did steps one, two, and three. It, you know, I hear a call the one, two, three dance. So I was definitely feeling better. I had lost uh, a fair amount of weight. And um, it was, uh, I had been done some traveling. It had been about a year. And it was time to go back to work uh, from a vacation. I was crying and I just didn't think that I could go back to work. And so I went into a meeting and uh, I approached someone and said, could you help me? Because I just, you know, these people are idiots. I can't stand my life and these, this work and everything. And she just said, have you done your fourth step? Well, no, it had only been a year. She said, well, try it. So I did my fourth step that weekend. And that was another game changer for me because I could begin to um, see my part and I could begin to see my craziness. So the food was down, but I was still crazy because, you know, there, that's what it says is the obsession of the mind. So, um, so I did my four step. I went ahead and did my steps. Uh, you know, I got, I did get through eight and nine, but, um, I still didn't have, you know, the physical recovery that I wanted. And so I, um, went to more restrictive OA groups, you know, weigh and measure food plans and I lost more weight, uh, but I was still crazy, right? So I was in a very restrictive uh, OA um, weigh and measure group. And one evening I took a taste of what I was cooking and I went, oh, oops, shoot. And I told my sponsor and she declared I had broken my abstinence. And at that moment I decided that that was not the recovery. 
that God intended for me. I left the group and I joined a big book uh, uh, based OA group. And that was August 13th, 2009. And at that time, I wrote in my book that I was willing to go to any lengths to have a spiritual experience. And that's when um, I really got the recovery that I, I had been hoping for and praying for. So what I knew then is that I would always be a compulsive overeater. I have no doubt that I'm a compulsive overeater. And um, I still get food thoughts, and I'm going to talk about that. But I felt very strongly that I wanted a normal relationship with food. I wanted freedom. And I wanted to understand my disease and the solution because I wanted to be happy, joyous, and free. I didn't want to be afraid of food anymore. And there's a lot of passages in the big book uh, that, that um, put this into perspective for me. And you know, on page 64 and how it works, it says, our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. And so... I could finally see that, you know, food wasn't my problem. It was my solution. And so I didn't need to look at the food anymore. I had to, had to keep the food in its proper place, but I needed to look at what was the problem, which was life. And in the doctor's opinion, it says, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who had seemed doomed, who had so despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds him easily able to control his desire for alcohol the only effort necessary, once again, that qualification being required to follow a few simple rules, which was the steps. So this is, you know, another promise of neutrality. On page 19, and there is a solution, it says, we feel that elimination of our drinking is just a beginning. Have to put the plug in the jug and the rest is life in the steps. And then on page 51, it says, we agnostics, it says, leaving aside the drink question. They tell why living was so unsatisfactory. So once again, it's telling me food is not the problem. That was my solution. And then we agnostics, it says, save for a few brief moments of temptation. The thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink even if he would. God had restored his sanity. So this is, you know, for me, another promise. And so, how did my sanity get restored? You know, and, and this is how it works for me. So I worked steps one through nine with a recovered sponsor, um, like my house was on fire. And so this was cleaning up the past. I had so much shame about my relationships uh, at my work. Uh, I had so much uh, shame about um, my physical body. Um, I had resentments towards not being safe in my own home. I had resentments about the sexual predators my mother was bringing into my life after my father died. And I didn't have a strong moral compass. I couldn't rely on my intuitive thoughts. So I, so I worked steps one through nine and I, and I was able to, you know, I love that um, the recording of Sandy of drop the rocks, drop the rocks. I, you know, I got to drop all those rocks of shame and resentment but then, you know, so I'm kind of a clean slate, and I don't know how to live. And so, um, so I I did have a, a spiritual experience um, early on in the beginning, and throughout the time, even before getting into the um, my big book study, because I I I could see that I that a power greater than myself was anything but me. And early on, I named it not me. 
And for me, I, I could see that food had been my higher power. And did I want potato chips to be my higher power? No, I didn't. Uh, so I, so it was not me. And then, um, and I still have a spiritual experience on a daily basis, and I'll get to that at the end. But what I did is I started to work steps, steps 10, 11, like my life depended on it. And this is what I believe is that my brain got broken as a child. I had a sugar allergy for sure. But, you know, so many life traumas happened to me. And with each trauma, you know, it's like my brain got rewired so that anything happened to me. My next thought was eat. I didn't have, oh, I'm, I'm scared. I'm fearful. I'm resentful. All of those were gone. It was just a rewiring. Something happened. And I didn't even think food. I just had to eat. So, you know, by the time that got translated into my adulthood, anything could happen to me. I could be standing with you and you could look at me a little bit funny. I, that's my interpretation, right? I don't even, you, you know, you could be just having a twitch, but I would interpret it that you were thinking about me and I wasn't dressed right. I wasn't, I didn't say the right thing. Something wasn't right about me. And my next thought was potato chip. There was no thinking about it. It was just, you know, it was just a feeling. Uh, or it might be ice cream. It might be candy. I just had a reaction. It was barely a thought. It was a micro thought. And then an action. And it's like an out-of-body experience. And if you're anything like me, you've experienced that where you don't even know how you got to the potato chip aisle in the grocery store. You don't even remember parking in the lot. That's what it was like for me. So, um, you know, so I was doing all the food behaviors, the sneaking, you know, and all of that. But, you know, so here I had my life in control. You know, my food was down. But I needed to figure out how to really get these promises, how to get this uh, happy, joyous, and free immortality. So in this big book uh, group I was in, they it really, really emphasized the 10 steps. And so um, the 10 steps started to reconnect my brain to my thoughts and to my actions because it was like all the wiring got disconnected in my childhood and I had to slowly and carefully like re-solder every connection and reconnect all the micro wiring and get it right. It had been a jumble and now I'm slowly rewiring this brain. So um, when I was doing the 10 steps, I was doing, you know, six to 12 10-step calls a day when I first uh, got into this big book study. And I didn't even have to do know why I was, I didn't even have to know why I was making that 10 step. It might start with, I want frozen yogurt because I didn't know what to do. And then I would call a recovered sponsor. I couldn't call someone who wasn't recovered. They couldn't help me. Right. So I would call someone who'd been through this already and we would pull the little threads apart to figure out what had happened prior to my making that call, what I was feeling. I'd start to go, Oh, I'm scared. I'm, I'm uh, mad. I'm sad. I'm, you know, whatever to show me how my brain was functioning. Uh, And it didn't mean that these events had actually happened. That was a hilarious part of what um, I got to experience is that most of the stuff I was reacting to was all fiction. It was like, I could, I could think that you were looking at me in a way that made something I had done 
or what I had worn or how I did my hair. It didn't matter. And I would be reacting to this piece of fiction as if it was true, feel bad about myself and have to go eat. And so these 10 steps started to pull that apart for me because I was still, you know, I was, I had already done my, um, my step work, especially my fourth step and my fifth step and my sixth and seven. So I could understand my character defects is what were my go-to thing. And of course my go-to thing was to make everything about me. You know, that's for sure. Everything was about me. And so, um, so we started to pull this apart and, um, and so I started to be able to get a little bit of a pause between having that thought I'm not okay, whatever was triggering it, and getting the pause and to be able to, in 10 steps first and now on my own most of the time, go, oh, I am scared that I'm not going to get attention. Oh, I want them to like me more. Oh, I got scared because I wore something a little flamboyant and maybe they didn't like it. Self. Oh, I got to just pull that apart a little bit and go, and then pause, give that up to God, and then uh, and then and follow the exact um, instructions of the ten step. Which you know, the ten step is it. I actually put it on a little index card and carried it with me so that I would actually do it the way right out of the big book. And it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. It was very clear. Selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And that, it says, continue to watch. We're not going to be done with it. We're, this is going to still happen. It says, when these crop up. And it gives me a four-part solution. One, we ask God at once to remove them. Two, we discuss them with someone immediately. Three, make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. And four, resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. So what it started to look like for me is that I would have the feeling, the sensation, wanting to run out of my body, wanting to eat something. And I would do that. It's like, oh, pause, God. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I would call someone, pull it apart make amends quickly. Rarely did I have to make amends. Usually it was all in my head, but sometimes I did. And then resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we could help. Often that was me literally getting back into the room of where I was sitting and turning my head towards someone I was in the room with and paying attention to what they were actually saying, being present for them. Obviously, you know, I could do more, but that was a good start to be present. So it, it, that became a daily practice. And, um, you know, for me, it, you know, the analogy I think of often is, is it's, uh, it's a daily practice like when I want to get into shape. If, if I want to lift weights, I'm going to go into the gym and I'm going to start with a one or a two pound weight. And I'm going to do a bicep curl every day. And I'm just going to keep on every day. And pretty mo- six months later, I'm pumping iron. Maybe I got 10 pounds. But it's because I did it daily. And this is how the 10th and, uh, and I'll get to the 11th step works daily because uh, if I didn't do it daily, it wasn't going to work. It's not like I work step through nine and voila, I'm cured. It is not like that. I still am an addict. Um, but for me, I can say again, it only worked if I was talking to someone, someone recovered who'd been there, who could actively lead me through the swamp of my mind. Um, 
So I rarely need to make a call now. You know, I get the thought and I get the pause. The pause, what a gift from God. And in the pause is where I get to go, oh, this is what I'm feeling, thinking. And I get to reset. And sometimes I get the pause and I make an amends at that second. It's like I've interrupted someone or I've said something that has been hurtful or uh, I had an opinion that wasn't asked. It doesn't matter. Make my, I make my amends. So I'm not living and acting in my crazy brain. So the other important part of getting my neutrality is the 11th step. And the 11th step is a list of questions that I answered every night. And um, the 11th step is so clear. Uh, of course, I didn't, don't have it in front of me. Let me see if I can get it. But it asks... You know, when I retire at night, you know, it asked me, you know, how was I during the day? So I put anything on there that I haven't cleaned up in my 10th step. So I, I, could, I could begin to see um, what, I, what I had, how I, if there was anything left over. I didn't want to go to bed with anything crazy on my brain. And it, so it says when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. And it asks again, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? And so we, I, I still have my sponsees do this. They get to tell me, how did I do today? Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology, yes or no? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? And uh, almost early on, that was almost a food secret. Um, so what was I feeling ashamed about? That's what had to go there. Were we kind and loving at all? Uh, what would, could we have done better? And the first year is were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? It was a year before I could say no. I was thinking of myself all the time. And then it goes on and it says uh, at the end, but we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. So, I get to do my inventory, give it up to God, and then I get to move on. I don't have to – I am a great critic. I, I can really uh, judge myself quite harshly. And this was a way to keep myself kind of current and clean and, and who, be who God would have me be every day and make sure I clean it up at night. And then how can I do it better the next day? So what it's like for me now in life – is I definitely get a food thought. Sometimes, you know, I think on the mindset, everybody, it sounds like, you know, we, we get recovered and we never have a food thought again. And I don't know what it's like for other people. I definitely get a food thought. Um, so I know for me, I know I can predict when I'm going to get food thoughts uh, on the big step. If anything happens to me physically where I get hurt, I am in a panic and I do want, you know, a potato chip. I mean, that's just what, that's my go-to. It doesn't mean I have to do it. It doesn't mean I have to act on it. But that, you know, so fear of getting hurt. Um, if I feel unsafe, that will be my food thought. But the next thing that happens is I get the pause. I don't have to act on it. And my, with the pause, what I get to do immediately is what's going on or uh-oh. And I often get the uh-oh. Um, and, and then that's the time for the intuitive thought, which is step 11 on page 86 and 87. And 
you know, it says here we ask God for inspiration in intuitive thought or decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We're often surprised how the right answers come after we've tried this for a while. And it says what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. So my mind's broken at first. And just like going to the gym, I have to very, very slowly get into a practice of having my mind work in a recovered way of thinking. And this is definitely God-directed. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable we are going to be inspired at all times. And certainly I have had crazy thoughts, not so much anymore. Uh, I find that if my intuitive thought is right and it's God-driven, I get calm. If it's my idea, I'm still like excited and agitated. So I can feel, you know, if, if I'm that intuitive thought is okay. It says, uh, at the end, it says, nevertheless, we find our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely on it. And so, um, and so for me, I, I can trust my intuitive thoughts now because I pretty much, I get the uh-oh, and then I scan quick for the character defect, and I get that up to God. What it is, is I feel like I'm reconnecting the wiring in my brain. That's what it feels like for me. And so, um, you know, I, I do believe that my wiring got disconnected in my childhood, and I, I have no shame about it at all. I had to survive, and uh, thank God I figured out something that would work for me. I, you know, there's a lot of people that come into program, especially our, our big book study, you know, in their 20s and 30s, and, you know, if I ever had a regret, it would be that I hadn't found this earlier, especially, you know, when I was raising my children. But it is what it is. Um, so uh, what it's like for me now is that um, I can I, I can understand when I can see and feel when my reactions are just self-centered or I'm in fear or I've been dishonest. Usually my dishonesty is with myself, first of all, and then with you. And I have to be, uh, I have to be honest in these character defects with myself. I have a, um, I have a daily practice, uh, you know, and, I have, a, I have a spiritual practice, and, and I, every morning when I wake up, I definitely, you know, do my meditation before I get out of bed. And I'm scanning for anything that, you know, that, isn't, that doesn't have me free, my brain free, my soul free. And um, I always uh, end my meditation with asking God who he would have me be and what he would have me do. So I start my day trying to came uh, a whole. I start. I try as a whole soul. You know, I came in broken. I, you know, I when I came in and I heard um, people talk about the hole in the soul, I totally got that. I my soul was broken, and um, so I've been working these steps. Uh, you know, working these steps since. 2009, uh, working it right the way the big book says. 
And it's only this past year that I am aware that my my whole and soul is healed. I, you know, I don't know when it happened. It's been, you know, over time. And for the first time in my life, I can love unrestrictedly and I can be loved. I can't, I couldn't even accept love. This is new for me. And, um, and so I, I have no doubt that I am a compulsive overeater in re- that I'm recovered, that I will get food thoughts. Those food thoughts for me are a barometer of my spiritual fitness. They do not define me, but they give me direction. Uh Oh, I'm in trouble. Um, And I get to act on that. And I get to act on that in real time. If I wait, I'm in bigger trouble. And, um, you know, if you're new on the line and and, uh, this whole thing of abstinence, uh, it, you know, it's hard, but, you know, Living in the disease is so much harder than getting abstinence. I, I, I pray for all, anyone who's on the line who isn't, you know, it, it's, it's just a rough go. It's like having to jump through another dimension, you know, but it is so worth it. Um, and then to work this program all the time, every day. And it does, it's not, I say work, it's not work. I just stay current. That's what it's like for me. And um, to end, you know, I have, I have these two, I have a sponsor who has just been a godsend for me. We've been together for a long time and um, directs me so beautifully. And the, the two, uh, there's two or three things that have stayed with me over the years. And one is uh, uh, in a vision for you, it says, then you will know what it means to give up yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. And I'd heard about that, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, the question was posed, if I don't love myself, how can I love someone else? So the healing that I had to do was to learn how to love and accept myself and with the steps and with her, with my sponsor's help and with God's help. I have to I have learned to love and accept myself. I can live with myself. When I came into program, what what food did for me is I wanted to run outside of my body and outside of my very brain. I couldn't stand being me. And that is no longer true for me and that is the most amazing gift uh from God. And um and on the same line we li- we listen to this every day in a vision for you. It's in the very, on page 164, it says the answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you can't transmit something you haven't got. And that's the deal is that this book, from, from the beginning right all the way through, it says, do this work, get healed, be happy, joyous, and free. Have the, the experience of living in neutrality with food. What a gift. And then when you, tra- when you get that, we get to help others on a daily basis. The reward is so worth it. Um, and with that, Janice, I pass. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia F. What a wonderful testimony of, you know, where you were and what happened and what you are like now, you know, how you uh, shared working the steps and how, you know, you continue to work the steps and use pausing to continue to live in neutrality 
and it's uh, and it's not about the food. <laughs> not only about the food uh, to keep safe and protected. You know, it's with other things in our life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving of yourself. Okay, Sylvia F's contact information will be given at the end of the meeting. So at this time, I'd like to open up and um, let's transfer now to any questions that you might have for Sylvia. So who would like to start off with a question for Sylvia? Morgan G. Okay, I hear it, Matt M. And I heard is it Morgan G. Yes. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Let's start with those two, and we'll have some more time. Yes. Who's yes? Cindy S. C I N D Y. Oh, Cindy. <laughs> Cindy S. Also. Okay. Let's uh, start with Matt. Please go ahead, dear. Can you hear me, me, Janice? I can hear you good. Thank you, Sylvia, for your qualification this morning, everyone. This is Matt M. Compulsory Eater from New Jersey. So, Sylvia, you said you deal with food cravings. How did you deal with the food cravings when they first started to happen? Who did you turn to and what did you do? So um, that's a great question, uh, Matt. So when I'm first getting abstinent, the thing is, is that the physical cravings are real. And... um, I don't know that there's any easy way to get to it. Um, For me, I just made sure that I worked with my sponsor and that my food plan was adequate to get through that time. And, um, you know, it's it's just, uh, you know, it's not easy. I I don't know any other way to say it. It's not easy, but it's short. It's short. And so I just had to commit to um, what I was going to eat. And do that once the physical allergy, and it did not take that long for the physical allergy to subside. I don't, you know, there's no time frame for anybody, but uh, when when I could get detoxed from all the crap I was eating, and you know, the thing that's so funny about it, um, uh, having a a eating disorder is uh, I, I wasn't overeating great food. I was eating crap food. And so I actually like food more now because I can taste it. But when I got, when I got detoxed, didn't take that long. When I started to work the steps, then when I got a craving, I, I could pretty much know that that craving was the obsession of the mind, which meant that I needed to work the steps. So it definitely is a different feeling for me, but that, you know, if, if it's, so working the steps, but detox, you know, the detox is hard, and you just uh, when I when I take on a new sponsee and they're having detox, we pretty much talk every day and we get through the book every day while they're detoxing, so we can remember that it's going to be worth it. But it's not fun. Does that help, Matt? Okay, thank you very Matt, much. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Matt, for the question. Okay, we're going to go on to Morgan G. Please. Hello. Question. Yes. Hello. Uh, hi. Um, this is Morgan G. Compulsive Overeater. Um, I was calling because um, the the experience that I'm going through right now, you know, is um, you know the the past two days I've I've been in full relapse and and I've experienced relapse before, but never relapse while in the program, you know, and so 
you know, just like you talked about with recovery, you know, it's a slow fade into recovery, into getting well and getting the sanity and stuff like that. And, you know, and so just the same with relapse, it's never just like one day I wake up and I eat, you know, the chips and the chocolate and stuff like that. It's been a slow fade, you know, first I stop the phone meetings and then stop the, um, you know, um, committing my food and so on and so forth. And then, you know, and then one day I wake up and it's like, all right, what's the point, you know? And so my question is like, um, is any experience that you have with relapse? Um, I mean, you know, cause I'm at the point now where it's like, I'm backed into a corner with the food. And so I'm at a crossroads, you know, I have to make a choice. Do I want to keep eating the, the food or do I want to get better? I want to get better, but I mean, I mean, you know, I just, I guess I'm asking what is your experience with that? What did you do when you were finally like, this is enough? Oh, such a great question, Morgan. So, uh, so this is, this is my experience from myself and from working with others is that I find in many ways that relapse is harder. When I first came in, you know, I had the gift of desperation and <laughs> relapse gets, uh, you know, it gets a little harder because I already know what the solution is, but I'm not quite as desperate because I've already made the decision. Yeah, I'm not so desperate. This potato chip's looking pretty good. So mm-hmm. um, f- for me, uh, let me, I don't, let's see if I can think through this clearly. The, the longer, I, I have to make a decision that I am desperate enough to do the work again because anything less than desperation for me does not work. And so, um, you know, John, John Kay has an excellent um, uh, special edition on relapse and about the salesman that tells you, you know, oh, this isn't so bad. Mm. Um, and, and so that's very helpful. And talking to other people who've come out of relapse is very, very helpful. Um, for, yeah, I guess for me, you know, I have to know, just like I wrote in my book, that I'm willing to go to any lengths and I'm willing to be uncomfortable. And I also, you know, when I get into relapse, it, it's just like you were talking about. It's an accumulation of untended to, you know, it's weeds in the garden. I just have yeah. not been tending that garden. So I have to go back and work the steps and I, you know, and do it quickly. You know, I I love how uh, Laurie says that uh, you you give up food and and you're starting to work the steps and this, your disease is coming over the top of you like a tsunami and you're running to do the steps quicker than that mm-hmm. disease can get to you. So um, yeah, I mean, it's I would do John Kay and um, and call people who successfully come out of relapse. And make a decision that you're desperate enough and work the steps like your house is on fire, you know, quickly. Mm-hmm. Because it is possible, it is possible today to put the food down and start your recovery. And that's what we have to know. You know, you make a decision and then you take the action of saying, I'm willing to do this work. Thank you very okay. much. Sure. Yeah, and thank you again, Morgan. Uh, for your question, and of course, Sylvia. Okay, Cindy S., if you have a question for Sylvia. Yes, thank you. Sylvia, I have uh, well, two parts. One is you, you, you make reference to 
just like you wrote in your book, I'm wondering if there's a book <laughs> that you wrote that, that we can all um, benefit from, if you could share that. And also the second part, <clears throat> I, I usually, I've been in program for a long time, and my story is that I have intense food cravings often when there are emotional things going on or when there are things I have to process, and I don't hear many people sharing that. So um, what I find is that when the intense food cravings come, I I, I press into my belief that that's just the disease, the lie of the disease talking. Uh, and and I guess uh, so. The the question sometimes I cannot relate it to what I can't point to anything that's triggering um, those intense food thoughts. Uh, however, I'm I have been abstinent and working the program by God's grace since December first, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, I get it. Like even after an event, yes, last night after the convention, I was starving. And I know that the intensity was so intense that it wasn't physical hunger. So I wonder, uh, I wonder, I guess you've already mentioned different things that you do. I wonder, um, I wonder what else you could say about people, in re- about that experience. Thank sure. you. Sure. Thank- yeah, thanks, Cindy. So uh, what I did is I wrote it in the front of, uh, to answer your first question, I wrote it right in the front of my big book. So fourth edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, and I wasn't directed to do it. I just felt compelled to make my commitment. So I wrote it right in my big book, and I dated it. And that's how I know when I came into the big book study. But um, I, this, I think it was coming from God. I don't know why I wrote that, and I'm happy that I did. So it's just in the front of my big book. And um, so the food cravings I can really relate to, um, for me, that is the obsession of the mind. And um, and so uh, you talked about it being, you know, uh, I think uh, emotional cravings. For sure, that's what I feel. But what I had to do in terms of doing those 10 steps all the time is I had to back it up with a recovered sponsor to go, okay, so what was that that I was feeling? And, boy, when I went to the convention, I had to do a lot of 10 steps because I, you know, I had to go through, you know, did I look recovered enough and uh, what if nobody likes me and what if I'm a fraud? And I had to do all of this work around being at the convention. So you talk about, you know, having food uh, uh, food cravings at the end of the convention. It's like, oh, you know, I could totally relate. So those 10 steps is exactly what I was talking about in terms of, for me, reconnecting my brain with the exact emotion or sometimes character defect of what the heck I was going on. And for me, it's almost always self, not always, but it's almost always self. I felt insecure that they didn't look right, didn't sound right, said something that somebody wouldn't approve of, that I didn't feel like one of, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was all 10 step work that I did um, with recovered people and with my sponsor that gave me the information of what I needed to know. So I agree with you completely. I just backed it up a little more, bit more. I defined it a little bit more. And that's where I really started to get my neutrality. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you very much, Sylvia. Sure. 
And thank you again, Cindy S., for the question, and Sylvia. And now, who else would like to have a question? If you have a question for Sylvia, I risk Carolyn S. H. All right, before hi Carolyn S. H. Before Carolyn, was it Riska? Yes, Riska R. Riska R. Okay. Anybody else has a question for Sylvia? Lori T. All right. Who is it? I'm sorry. Lori T. Lori T. Got it. Anyone else? All right. Let's listen to let's uh, Riska. R. Do you have a question, my dear? Go ahead. Yes. Uh, Sylvia, thank you so much for your share. It was very moving. My question is about um, when you said you took that that taste um, of food, and your ab- and your sponsor told you you were, had broken abstinence, and you didn't want um, your your recovery to be like that. Um, so I really related to that because I was also in a very very strict um, uh, group like that for many years. And I feel that now that I've and I relapsed and I, I'm back in program again and doing vision. Um, part of me and I'm I feel very neutral with my food and and very happy with my abstinence. But part of me says, oh, I'm not doing that. You know, like exactly, 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 exactly. And maybe I'm doing something wrong. So I'd like to know what your abstinence looks like today and how you become at peace with your abstinence when it's not, you know, part of that rigid uh, paradigm. Right. Thank you, Riska. So the thing I love about uh, our program, the big book, A Vision for You, um, is that it is a big tent that's all-inclusive. And so there are so many of us who do our food differently and that we are still all recovered. And I love that about what we do. And for me, um, uh, weigh and measure, let me think about how I want to say this. So I, so I, wanted, I wanted to have a, a normal and natural relationship with food, which meant that, you know, so the great thing about the, the um, very rigid um, weigh and measure is it really taught me what uh, food should look like a healthy uh, eating should look like, and I don't know that I knew that as clearly. So uh, that was part, a, a excellent part, and an important part of my history. Mm-hmm. So what? So now, what? It, where I am with the food is that my food and my abstinence is between me, my sponsor, and God. And I have to. I mean, my food is very, very clean. When I look at it, when I started. It feels like I'm wandering, but I'm actually trying to pull my thoughts together. When I started um, to change up my program, my recovery, and my food, my commitment was not to eat any more crap or junk. So I don't, you know, so that would would have been a trouble area. So I'd never have to feel bad about that. And, um, And so my food is healthy. If a, if a portion gets too big, it's always going to be a carbohydrate, and so I have to pay attention. I might measure that, but it's not because I have to, and I'm not reporting to anyone about it. And, um, you know, I could say also that um, that my the way that I have done this 
which is very much to eat healthy, not overeat, um, uh, is that I have consistently lost weight over the past, you know, nine years. And my weight still goes down um, slowly. And so I, I think, I guess what I want to say is that I don't feel like I have to apologize or justify to anyone else. And if I do feel like that, I need to do some step work. I don't, you know, so I feel like I'm meandering, but it's like if I'm feeling guilty or feeling like it's not perfect or I'm feeling like I'm a fraud or something and my sponsor and I are talking about it and I'm good, I just, I need to do some step work about why I feel that way and just get okay with God. And, you know, one of the things I do a lot is when I start getting into my head, and this could be about my food or it could be about my body, it could be about anything, I literally do a uh, very quick spiritual exercise and I look at how God would see me, how God sees me. I literally visualize how God would see me. And, you know, God is kind and loving and, um, and does not judge me harshly on this, on minutia. And so uh, I guess I, I really go to God on this stuff you know, and I, if, and when in doubt, you know, I make sure I pass it by my sponsor and I have a, a good spiritual tribe of people that I call. So, you know, I don't know if I've answered that clearly enough, but that I think that that's what I've got. Okay. Thank you so and, much. Thank, and thank you so much, Sylvia. Yes, because food is an outside issue. So, you know, right. I think that was a great, great general um, answer for this because, you know, um, abstinence is just the vehicle to refrain from compulsive overeating so we're all open and envisioned for you we don't you know have a food plan thank you risky okay carol and sh it's your turn hi good morning janice thanks for your service good morning um sylvia thank you so much um for your presentation uh really valuable to me um Carolyn S.H., recovered in Massachusetts. And I was wondering uh, if you would expand uh, even more on your Step 10 process. Um, I was really struck by how you described uh, that it helped with the rewiring of your brain. Um, And, uh, like, talk about the Step 10 process then and now, because you did talk a little bit about how it evolved and also especially how it, helped you decrease self-judgment because in my experience, in my own experience, my experience of working with others and in taking a lot of step 10 calls, um, it's very easy. I hear a lot of us do the opposite. We use step 10 to judge ourselves. Um, And I would love to hear specifics of how you do the, the opposite. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Great question. Yeah, I love uh, I love step ten, and I love what it's done for me. And so, um, literally, how I do it. And so, the thing about step ten for me is it was the minutia of life that was step that was killing me more than the big stuff. And so, literally, I could be sitting in a meeting, and someone would grimace. And I would look at them and sure, somehow I was not okay. You know, so nothing's happened, right? It's all, 
in my brain. It's all fiction because I'm looking for a reason to not feel okay for, I guess, I don't know. I'm just uh, looking for validation that I'm not okay. And I loved when the first time my sponsor said to me, you know, what if when they were looking at you, they just eaten at McDonald's and they had a gas pain. It is not about you. And that was just such a relief because she made me laugh. And then I go, okay, so um, not everything is about me. So when I do, so when I do the 10 steps, you know, it, so it literally is asking me about my selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And so my, you know, it's almost always about me, you know, some kind of self-centered action or self-centered thought. But I also found that dishonesty was huge and dishonesty was about lying to myself about something, making some kind of rationalization or justification for some, uh, trying to be, feel okay about something I had done. And so dishonest, dishonesty became a huge part of that. So how I did it at first was literally not being ashamed to dial as many people as I had to, to keep on walking me through this process, which is to ask God at once to remove them, discuss them with someone immediately. That was the call. Make amends quickly, you know, uh, and it, you know, I, right away and resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we could help. I love the structure of that. And, you know, if I'm resolutely turning my thoughts to someone I can help, it means I can't be in my head and my head is where the problem is. So I would, I would get on the phone a lot. Now what it's like is um, most of the time I catch it immediately. So I have a, you know, it's a sensation, which is a thought. And I go, oh, so that's my pause. Oh, and I stop and go, what's going on? And I do a quick, you know, it's like a quick scan. What's going on? Oh, I'm upset that my brother didn't give me any warning or, you know, I wanted to, so I wanted to control the world. Um, oh, I did, my friend didn't respond the way I wanted to, to, to when I told her this. And I just, oh, so I guess it just go, oh, that's what's going on. I give that up to God. And if I can't give it up, you know, if I'm like still, if I am like the conversation with a person who's not in the room keeps on happening, if I keep on going back, like I have a, like a sore in my mouth and I keep on going back to feel it, feel it, feel it, feel it, and I can't give it up, I do make a phone call if that one phone call doesn't, Usually one phone call will work because we will really get to causes and conditions and I get that up. It could be that I'm still having problems if it's really one that, you know, I really can't give up. I might have to do some writing, some meditation or prayer, or make another call. It's rare that I have to do that. The thing is, is that once I've experienced happy, joyous and free, once I've experienced serenity, once I've experienced neutrality, I don't want to be in my head anymore. And so it, it, it's a great it's a great motivator to do the work. I want to feel okay now. I don't want to stay here up in my head. My head is crazy. So, um, so that's, that, that's what I do now. And so it's just very quick. And so I think that what happens is each time I do that, it's, that is the rewiring of my brain. Cause you know, where I started was, um, having sensation, sensation, any sensation, eat. That's where I started from. And then I got to have a sensation, call someone, work it out, you know, figure out what's happening, go through the process. Now when something happens, it's get a sensation, 
get a pause, own whatever that character defect is on my part, because it's pretty much always my part, you know, whether I didn't have a boundary or I was dishonest or whatever, deal with it and get my serenity back. And so it's much quicker. And I think that is what uh, basically healed me because I wasn't living in shame and fear and remorse and, you know, all of those things. So, I, and, and I, you know, I, I, I think the important part is, you know, I just work the program every day and I've got to be patient with myself. God is patient with me. God is loving to me. I've got to be patient. I am not, you know, never going to be cured, but I can just do this and not, I can't flail myself and berate myself and think I have to do more, 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 more. You know, I have to just calm down and do this gently and patiently for me. That help? Yeah, that was terrific. Thank you. Sure. And thank you both. Thank you, Carolyn SH and Sylvia for the answer and question. Okay, Laurie T, it's your turn. Uh, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you, Sylvia, for just a great, great talk. And I have some thoughts. Um, they're fairly general questions, but I think they, they would be helpful. Um, and I, I, I'm really looking forward to your responses to them. So the first one was regarding um, the very traumatic sexual traumas that you had. I was curious if you were comfortable sharing what those looked like um, in, in your step four. Um, because I think it's hard for some of those more difficult experiences. It's very hard to get those all the way across the form and say, where, where, was, where was I dishonest in this? Uh, if you were comfortable, I'd love to hear if you can recall sharing about that. And then when, um, when you do have other things come up from the past, like for me, you know, my mother, and I'm sure for many others, you have these long-term relationships that many different instances Formed resentment, and maybe some are just coming up now. Even though I'm, I'm in ten, eleven, and twelve. Um, do you do those as an immediate step ten, or do you just reflect on those and kind of do a four and talk more about it with your, with your sponsor as as kind of your step five? And then the last question, I hope this isn't too many, was if you can really give me a, your definition of neutrality because when reading it, it almost sounds maybe like for somebody. And even myself, it almost sounds like, well, I'm neutral around this substance. So I can have it. I'm neutral around this substance. So it doesn't bother me. Nothing, uh, I, don't, I don't get provoked in any way. And just as you were saying, it's not that those food thoughts don't come up. So I was wondering if you could maybe just define a little more succinctly for me what neutrality means to you. I mean, what does that really mean versus abstinence versus having it? a solution to deal with a thought and things like that. And if you can do any one of those or all, I'd be so happy. <laughs> so thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lori P. Those are great questions. So, so the traumatic uh, sexual experiences, um, so, you know, those are a process. I did do them on my step four, and um, I had multiple uh, uh, sexual experiences that were just, I mean, definitely uh, life-changing for me. And so I had to deal with them in different ways. You know, molestation in the home is different than rape. And so um, with the rape, uh, I, had to, uh, I had to forgive myself for believing it was my fault. And I had gotten into 
I was so stupid. I shouldn't have put myself in that position. And the fact is, is that there is no instance where I could be at fault for that rape. And so I had to really work with someone and forgive myself. It was not my fault. Um, so, you know, it, you know, and I didn't, it was, it was a stranger rape. So, you know, it's not like I could go find the person or do anything. So, um, and so, you know, it's an important piece of work of forgiving myself that it was, ne- it was never going to be my fault. Um, it, there's no situation that would have made that okay. Um, and what the molestation, that, that's a, such a complicated one. And so um, my resentment was uh, definitely towards not being safe in my own home. Uh, but it took me years to figure out what the, what the resentment was. And so, you know, we do the best we can on the step four. And then when, when it comes up, we keep on, you know, doing the work that we had to do, we have to do. So uh, when it first came up, I didn't know what my part was. And I had a great sponsor who, worked with me to understand that my part was not letting it go, you know, letting it define me, you know, letting it make me not trust my relationships, letting me um, uh, not be around my family, you know, all of these things so that I was letting it own me. And so that's where I started as best I could. Um, So um, the way that I know that the program and God works is that um, I have a relationship with the person who did it. And um, so I can show up in my family and we can all be together. And, um, but the, now I have boundaries with the person and I feel fine about my boundaries. And it is so, and this, you know, so this happened as a child, I'm 65 and it's only now this month that now I'm ready to actually confront the person. I've never confronted the person and I'm ready to confront the person in a way that I feel absolutely God directed and I feel great about. Um, and I know why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm, yeah. So I feel like we've never talked about it. And that person has a right to know why I can't be, you know, kind and loving and close to them because that person I think would like it. And it's just not going to happen because of his actions. And, you know, I think he's confused. And I was like, Oh, that's where I'm going to go with this. I think each one is different. I think the important thing is that over time I didn't have to be defined by them. And so um, when I, when I did, when I um, did my work originally, I called my mom who, you know, my mom, I, my mom was not a great mom. She was my mom. She was not a great mom. I absolutely was able to forgive her for doing the best that she could. She did do the best that she could. I have no doubt and, you know, it wasn't half good enough, but, you know, we, that's what we had. And, um, and so I don't resent her. I do see her as someone broken. When I called her to talk to her about um, uh, not being safe in my own home, what was, I knew that she would not give me what I wanted, and that didn't matter. I decided I was going to tell her anyway. And when I called her up and said, look, at this is what happened, the first thing that she said is, well, you don't expect me to hate him, do you? And I was okay with that. It's like, you know what? Nothing out of character here. And I was calling because I needed to be able to say I should have been safe in my own home. And, um, and so I am not defined by, by those uh, experiences. And, you know, it says no matter how far down the scale we've gone, 
you know, those experiences will be valuable to others. And I've been able to help a lot of people because I have been there and I have been able to move beyond it. You know, and that's just the same, you know, thing with my mom's relationship. You know, I, I did it on the fourth step. It took a long time to really, really, really know and believe that she did her best and she was very broken. And um, if she could have done better, she would have done better. I knew she loved me, but um, she just needed my love more than she could give love. And so that's just what we had. And um, in the end, I had the same relationship with her as uh, the other family member is that I could show up and I could be kind and loving and um, I could be helpful but I had a boundary and um, that boundary made her very uncomfortable because she, you know, I felt like she was a drowning person who wanted to take me down with her and I wasn't going, but it didn't mean that I had to be, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, I could still participate in a relationship, but I had to, you know, have it be on my terms. And I felt okay about it. Um, when she died, um, you know, I, I, I was, I didn't have a lot of remorse about the stuff that I had done. And then, you know, this neutrality, uh, you know, it, so this is what I think is that neutrality means I can walk into a room where everybody else is eating dessert and I'm not going to go, oh, gee, I wish, or just what is that like? I've never seen that before. And, um, and start to imagine how good that would be. Neutrality is like not my food, just not my food. So if I get off the physical addiction, that is the easiest part. If I'm starting to have that one, uh, you know, thing on the on the dessert buffet when everybody else is uh, eating, if that's starting to talk to me, you know, it sounds it might sound naive, but this is tr- my truth. I use it as a spiritual barometer. Ah, what's going on? Is it that I want to be like everyone else, or is it that I think somehow that's going to make me feel better, then why don't I feel good? And so for me, my trigger is often, um, and so I'm an extrovert, but yet I can be triggered in social settings. I am nervous. I want people to like me. I want to feel a part of a group. And so social settings are where I have to be more careful. So if I'm looking at the dessert bar and something's talking to me, I just, that's that quick 10 step. It's like, okay, why don't I just sit with someone and be of service to someone in the room, talk to someone, or why don't I just pray real quick to be okay with whoever I am and whoever God would have me be. So I use it as a spiritual barometer. If I haven't triggered the allergy, it's in my head. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sylvia, and thank you, Laurie T. And thank you, Sylvia. Oh, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I'm Kathy, may I share? I was muting. Okay, I want to thank both of you. Yes, who is this, please? Kathy, and just a quick thank you. I'm not able to hold on for the number, and um, thank you. And where I get tripped up is I I minimize. I don't believe I need to discuss it with someone. So thank you, and I pass. Did you have a question, Kathy, for Sylvia? I don't think she had a question. Oh, okay. All righty. Thank you, Sylvia. Anyone else? We still get some time. If anybody would like to step up and have a question for Sylvia. Hello, this Hi. is Kimberly. Okay, we have Kimberly. Thank you. Kimberly, Kimberly what's your... Kimberly S. Um, I wanted and to somebody ask... Else. Hold, one moment, Don. Okay. One moment, Kimberly. Who was after Kimberly? 
Was there somebody? It's Mary Lou in California. Okay, Mary Lou. Mary Lou what? What's your first initial? M. All right, Mary Lou, you'll be next. Kimberly, please go ahead. Here's your question. Um, thank you for sharing, Sylvia. And I wanted to ask about your boundaries that you set with people. What, how do, would you define that for me about a boundary? Um, well, it depends on the person. Um, so, uh, you know, the person who molested me, I am, I am definitely not comfortable being, you know, uh, uh, that person cannot talk about sex even uh, generally or remotely. Uh, it, in my presence, I can leave the room. Um, that, that person can't demean or minimize or make fun of me uh, in any way. Uh, you know, I can, I can just stop the conversation. I can leave the room. I don't have to be harsh about it. I just don't have to participate. And so my boundaries are mostly under what conditions that I will be with this person um, that feels very clear and doesn't feel harsh. It's just about me, not, and I, you know, not controlling their behavior at all, but what will I accept? And it's the same thing with my, uh, my mom before she died. Uh, you know, she wanted more from me than I was willing to give. And so I was very careful. I was very clear to be, you know, a, uh, you know, a good daughter to her, but not go anywhere try and, and try and fill her need in a way that was uncomfortable to me and didn't feel <clears throat> healthy and, uh, and God-directed. And so it's person by person, you know, these boundaries. And it's, it's great stuff, you know. Uh, Al-Anon is great for it, um, and sponsorship and step work is great for it. Is because, <clears throat> you know, any, any, basically, in generality, anyone who's been um, sexually traumatized, especially as a young age, <clears throat> the first thing that happened is I lost my boundaries, and I didn't know the word no. And that's the biggest way that I was harmed by other people. And so um, I had to learn that as I got older is um, what is healthy, what is right for me, and that I don't have to participate and know is a complete sentence. Okay, thank you. And definitely Al-Anon. Yeah. I've, I've been going to meetings. Good, <laughs> yeah. cool. Thank you. Good, good instructions, good suggestions. Thank you, Kimberly S., for your uh, question. Okay, Mary, is it Mary Lou M.? Yes, can I be heard? You can. Hi, Mary Lou uh, from Southern California, um, recovered. I um, I really, really resonated with your story, and I feel that I uh, it's very much my own. And I'm wondering if you've ever had any... Um, after working the steps with uh, the trauma and the, uh, my mother was a borderline and borderline and still is alive. And so, thank you for mentioning the deeper issues through the steps and uh, the traumas that you experienced um, and the relationship with your mother. Have you heard of uh, uh, Marion Woodman, the book Addiction to Perfection? And have you dealt with? Uh, I've noticed in your share you talked about I want three times you mentioned. 
I wanted to get out of my body. I wanted to run out of my body. Wondering if you've done any outside work with uh, somatic conscious dance embodiment or getting into your body and dealing with your mother issues. Have you worked with the uh, the work of Marion Woodman, Addiction to Perfection? Have you heard of her and have you had any outside help around the issues with mother and your and being in your body? With with some kind of dance or somatic psychotherapy. Just wondering if you've heard of any of that, because that's what has helped me. Well, thanks, Mary. You know, uh, all of those uh, sound wonderful. Definitely an outside issue for um, this meeting. Um, and for me, uh, I I was able to. You know, the feelings of wanting to get outside of my ba- body. Definitely, I worked with through the steps. And I and for me. When I feel like I need to be outside of my body, it's usually incredible shame, and it's over something uh, of perfection. And I can turn that around pretty quick, pretty quick now. I had, uh, so, you know, I, I have a new, I have a new, I'm going through a new experience. I'm starting basically a new career at 65 years old, and um, it is in a body experience it's in kind of a it's restorative exercise and I do teach Zuma etc but anyway um, I am having to get up in front of a class and teach in an area that I'm not comfortable at all I don't have the base uh, the I, I feel like I'm not ready I don't have the base knowledge yet and so I um, I taught a class on Tuesday night and felt so embarrassed and ashamed because I didn't do it well enough. And, you know, everybody would see me. I felt like, you know, they would see me for the fraud that I am. And I was able, I experienced that shame and wanting to run out of my body. Uh, And I haven't felt that in a long time. And the beautiful part of working the steps and the big book for me is that I could own what that was. It's like, oh, I haven't felt that shame and embarrassment and that I'm a fraud. And I haven't felt that in a long time. And I was able to really quickly, without even calling anyone, reframe exactly what I was thinking. And so instead, I said, okay, look it. I am new. No one expects me to be perfect. And I can feel so good about the courage it takes to be 65 and standing up in front of this room and starting something new. And that's where I'm going to start now. So, you know, they, they, you know, we do that as part of whether it's a fourth step or a 10 step, you know, we, we turn the angle on it. Same thing happened. Nothing different happened, but I didn't have to stay in my shame and remorse and fear. And I didn't have to feel like I had to run out of my body. So to answer your question, you know, it's, it's once again, it's just a barometer of the work that I need to do, and it's very quick. I don't have to stay there at all. And so I thank you very much for your, for your question. Okay. I think we have time for perhaps one more question. Does anyone have a burning desire to ask Sylvia? Tina H. Okay, Tina. I think we'll cl- close up after you, so please stay tuned. Tina H., go ahead. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you so much. And I feel like you were talking my life. My one question to you is how do you um, work a fourth step or continue to keep that for those who have passed? Yeah, so so Tina, the fourth step is definitely about, you know, my 
feelings and my experience with that person. And so uh, it doesn't matter if someone's not on the planet, it's still my work. And so, you know, there, there are definitely ways, you know, if you've harmed someone to, uh, you know, to whether it is to do the work um, to uh, make your amends and whether it's to them or you're passing it forward to another per- person or restitution, it, you know, it, it just doesn't matter. It's our work, whether they're on the planet or not. Thank you again, Sylvia. Sure. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And, of course, Sylvia, thank you. It was it was just uh, wonderful to hear the solution that you found to be neutral, to, to be safe and protection by pausing and using spiritual energy because that's the solution. Um, we will now close, <clears throat> pardon me, with the reading from a, uh, page 164, a vision for you, and then we will ask um, Sylvia for some contact information. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and then great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, 